welcome. It's an honor to uh, have you on my new platform uh, called Executive Realness, where we explore the intersection of blackness and queerness, but also race, class, gender, pop culture, and politics. So first things first, congratulations on your primary win. I know the wait was over six weeks, so how does it feel? Uh, both exhausting and exhilarating at the same time. You know, I never thought as a poor kid from the Bronx that I would become a United States Congressman. Uh, I never thought while running for Congress that I would contract an infectious disease. Uh, and then I never thought after winning the primary that I would have to wait six weeks uh, to have the results of my election certified. So it's been quite the roller coaster and life never unfolds as you imagine it. Absolutely, but they often say that it's better than you imagine when it's all said and done. So remarking on your COVID journey, would you mind sharing with us how you felt, what symptoms you had early on, and then how you, you know, wrote out the infectious, you know, virus? Yeah, so I was the first uh, city council member to be diagnosed with COVID-19 in New York City. Uh, even though COVID-19 early on was associated with those who were older, ironically, the youngest member of the city council was the first to contract the virus. And I had symptoms that resembled those of the flu, uh, extreme fatigue, fever, dry cough, although thankfully I had no serious problems breathing. Yeah, it took me out of the campaign trail for about a month, but the symptoms were manageable. I required no hospitalization, uh, but I had to isolate myself for several weeks and keep a distance from my own mother, who's the most important person to me. But my mother at age seven, at age 60, uh, is, is particularly vulnerable to the worst impacts of COVID-19. Absolutely. Well, we're very happy and grateful that you made a speedy recovery and that you were finally able to claim victory over your opponent. Um, so there was a lot of controversy uh, during the campaign season um, with, you know, opponents saying that you were hypocritical in some of your stances. And I understand that you are uh, pro-defund the police and you consider yourself uh, progressive and not a democratic socialist. Would you mind sharing how that differentiation came to be, what it means, and why you are so adamant about defunding the police while also advocating for bringing jails closer to the borough as opposed to Rikers Island? Sure, you know, on the subject of policing, for me, the most important value is accountability. Like all decent people agree that Civilians who do violence to officers should be held accountable. Officers who do unjustified violence to civilians should be held accountable. But here's the problem. A civilian who does violence to officers will face accountability. But an officer who does violence to civilians, particularly civilians of color, rarely faces accountability. And that is the double standard that has the legitimacy of our criminal justice system crumbling. And as far as I'm concerned, where there is no accountability, there will never be an end 
to police brutality, right? If officers are never punished or prosecuted for the abuse of power, then those officers have no incentive to, to practice de-escalation and practice restraint. So we need to restore accountability. And I see there are two threats to accountability policing. One is law, the legal doctrine of qualified immunity, which is essentially a license to brutalize black and brown lives. So we need to abolish qualified immunity. And the second is culture, what is known as the blue wall of silence. And by way of illustration, consider the example of Buffalo. There were two officers that shoved a senior citizen to the ground. Those two officers were rightfully suspended under public pressure. And the whole unit resigned to show solidarity with those two officers who were rightly punished for assaulting a senior citizen, right? That demonstrates that the problem is not only a few bad apples. The problem is a culture of impunity, a blue wall of silence that enables police misconduct. And as long as that blue wall persists, uh, there will never be an end to it. Couldn't one argue that the story of police violence against black and brown bodies is the story of America? Uh, I mean, that is the 1619 Project, that, that the theft of black bodies, the devaluation of black bodies uh, is as old as America itself. It pre-exists the Republic itself. Absolutely. Uh, I think, it's, you know, COVID-19, but it's not only inequalities in policing. COVID-19 has laid bare the deeper, the deeper racial inequalities that date back to 1619. Absolutely. And that's why we have to approach governing through the lens of historical racism. Now, do you see uh, defund the police in that movement and holding uh, police forces across the country accountable the way that civilians are held accountable, um, you know, getting rid of that double standard, as you say? Do you see that as a mutually exclusive issue from um, the abolitionist movement in terms of getting rid of prisons? Um. I'm not, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not supportive of abolishing prisons. I mean, there's, there are some people who do commit violent crimes and have to be, I think too many people go to prisons. Like we, we should reverse mass incarceration. Right. We know the story um, but, of a Cook but, County per se. But the, but the notion that there should be no prisons at all, uh, I'm not aware of, of a society on earth that has no prisons. Um, so uh, but I do agree that we should dramatically reduce the amount of over-policing and incarceration in our society. Thank you. So on a similar note, uh, Ed Mullins, you know, created quite the firestorm last week, I believe it was, and you've since uh, requested his resignation. You've had support from Mayor de Blasio's office. Can you tell me what that experience was like for you, not as a politician, but as a young queer man of color? Look, the comment from Ed Mullins is a reminder that I am black first and foremost, I'm queer first and foremost, and that no amount of political power is gonna insulate me from disrespect. 
Um, it is clear that Ed Mullins has no regard for people of color, women, members of the LGBTQ community. He has, there's no public figure with a more extensive record of hate in New York City government and New York City politics at Ed Mullins. Um, he leads the Sergeant Benevolent Association, which is something of a misnomer. It should be renamed the Sergeant Malevolent Association. In fact, all of the police unions are essentially malevolent associations, do far more harm than good, and see it as their primary objective to defend police misconduct, no matter how egregious. But look at Ed Mullen's record. He referred to a black linebacker in the NFL as a, quote, wild animal. He referred to a Latina health commissioner as a bitch. He referred to an openly LGBTQ elected official as a, quote, first class whore. He promoted among his members a video that portrays people of color as, quote, Section 8 scam artists and welfare queens. Absolutely. He appeared on Fox News with a mug that bears the image of Quanon, which is a far-right conspiracy movement that traffics in anti-Semitism. He has threatened violence against the mayor himself. He has invaded the privacy of the mayor's door. Like, are those acceptable behaviors for a public servant? Like a man of his temperament, of his bigotry, has no business serving in any position of public responsibility. One might challenge and say that he's actually just exposing what we've known all along, that, you know, the, the ways in which black and brown bodies are devalued across society writ large. Um, on that same note, what are your thoughts about the police union, the NYPD, uh, you know, 50,000, I think, or so, endorsing 45, as I refer to him? All the police unions have become a poisonous force in New York City politics. You know, how can the Police Benevolent Association claim to care about communities of color and then support a president who has no respect for people of color, who has built his career on demonizing people of color? Like, what kind of message does that send to the communities that you police? So I consider what the PBA did to be a betrayal. Absolutely. Like Donald Trump, you know, New York City is teetering on the brink. We have multi-billion dollar deficits. We are approaching bankruptcy. We are in danger of laying off over 20,000 public employees, right? The stability of New York City is at stake. And Donald Trump's message to New York City is to drop debt. So the New York City Police Benevolent Association has endorsed a president who is actively sabotaging the very city that employs those police officers. Indeed, indeed. A so-called police union is endorsing a president who seeks the destruction of the labor movement. Are we surprised, given what we know about stop and frisk, per se, and you know how those numbers it, have... It, 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 it demonstrates the power of racism. Yes. That, that, that the, the institutionalized racism of the PBA is deeper than their self-interest. So <laughs> we've started on a bit of a somber note. Um, I do want to pause for just a second, if we can have a moment of silence. 
um, as we are recording this on the 19th anniversary of 9-11. Thank you. So, yes, we know about stop and frisk. We know about the disparities for communities of color as it relates to both COVID and over-policing of communities. Um, when we talk about defund the police, among friends, I like to say, you know, I don't think that we should change the language. And, you know, uh, Queen Jane Fonda recently echoed that same sentiment that it's time for black and brown people to lead the charge and for everyone else to follow instead of uh, critiquing the language which we use around these movements. However, as I've been saying to friends, you know, around uh, Zoom dinner tables, uh, what if we called it community investment? And I know that's something near and dear to your heart. Uh, can you speak to me about affordable housing as well as your championing for the reopening of indoor dining, um, I think at 25% as of September 30th, correct? Yes. Um, the central cause of my life is housing. I would not be where I am today were it not for affordable housing, public housing, and the stability it gave me and my family. But public housing in New York City has been so savagely defunded by the federal government that it has $40 billion worth of capital needs. And so I grew up in public housing, living in conditions of mold and mildew, leaks and lead, without reliable heat and hot water in the winter. I know what it's like to be abandoned by the federal government. Right? There are asthmatics who are living in molded conditions who are struggling to breathe in their own homes. Right? There have been senior citizens who were freezing in their own apartments during the cold of winter. There are children poisoned by lead and once you're poisoned by lead it has consequences that haunt you for the rest of your life there are disabled residents in top floor apartments who are prisoners in their own home because the elevators keep breaking down that's the impact of systemic racism that's the impact of federal disinvestment from communities of color and those are not only problems that I've studied as a policymaker those are struggles that I've lived in my own life. So we need to fundamentally reinvest in affordable housing in general and public housing in particular and give people the decent and dignified housing that they deserve. You know, the South Bronx has one of the highest concentrations of public housing in the United States. It's said to be the poorest congressional district in America. But COVID-19 has shown that the South Bronx is the essential congressional district of America. It's the home of the very essential workers who put their lives at risk on the front lines so that most of us could safely shelter in place. And we owe it to those essential workers to give them a fighting chance at a decent life, to create a social safety net that establishes both health and housing as human rights. Uh, so for me, you know, housing is the foundation on which you build a better life for yourself and your family. You know, there are 60,000 people in the New York City municipal shelter system, a third of whom are children. So there are children in New York City, in the wealthiest city in the world, 
who have never known life outside of shelter. That is a scandal. That is an indictment of who we are as a society. And what was it last week? It was just announced that the hotels that had temporarily been converted uh, to you know, shelters for the overflow during COVID-19, they're being displaced from those hotels, I understand, across Manhattan? Um, I don't know. Um, I know that the, the latest controversy is the, you know, historically shelter sightings have been overwhelmingly concentrated in communities of color. Uh, and DHS cited a shelter in the Upper West Side only to agree to relocate it under political pressure uh, because, you know, wealthier, whiter neighborhoods can afford fancy lawyers who who prevent or react against shelter sightings and certain neighborhoods. So that has been, um, as far as as far as I know, that's been the main controversy surrounding homelessness at the moment. Let's lighten the mood for a second. <laughs> um, take me back to, you know, young Richie. Uh, let's say your teen years. I know you went to uh, Lehman High School, is it? I did. Another famous alum, Cardi B, I saw you tweet out earlier. This same week. campus. D different schools, but same campus. So we went to different schools within the same campus. Okay, wonderful. So, and then from there, you briefly attended NYU. Would you mind walking us through that journey? Sure. So when I was in high school, I was the captain of the law team. I was actually, when I came to move court, I was the best in the city. I led the law team two years in a row, and in both of those years, we won the citywide boot court competition, defeating the likes of Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, Brooklyn Tech, um, and Lehman High School has never won, never went, never won before then, and has not won since then. So that was the the golden age of the, the law team, and you know it was from the law team that I learned the ability to speak and write and think and read critically. It's where I developed my skills as a public speaker, because when you're arguing a case before a panel of judges, you're not simply reading from a script. You have to answer questions um, extemporaneously. You're, you're delivering an argument in the face of relentless, rigorous questioning from judges who know the subject matter as well as you do. And so that was great preparation for life and politics, which is heavy on public speaking. And during the moot court competition, I had an opportunity to argue uh, a case regarding copyright infringement before actual judges of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which is one level below the Supreme Court. So to have that kind of experience as a poor kid of color from the Bronx was transformative. And it has it, it, had benefits that are with me till this day. Um, Have you ever... when I arrived at NYU... Oh, no, no, no. Go on, please. Yeah, then when I arrived at NYU, um, you know, I began to discover that I was struggling. I did not realize at the time that I was struggling with depression because I had no word for it. You know, when you're struggling with depression, it's tempting to blame yourself, to attribute what you're feeling to a failure of character or a failure of willpower. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, I dropped out of college, 
there were moments when I was abusing substances. Um, my best friend died from a drug overdose. And I was struggling with a sexual identity crisis. And it became so overwhelming that there were moments when I thought of taking my own life. You know, I felt as if the world around me had collapsed. So, you know, now I'm a United States, I'm about to be a United States Congressman, but 14 years ago, I was at the lowest point in my life. Um, and then seven years later, I became the youngest elected official in the largest city in America. And now I'm about, I'm about to become a United States Congressman. It's quite so the feat. It is a sense in which, you know, my story is the story of the Bronx. It's a I story of struggle. But also largely it could be the story of America as well, right? Especially at the intersections of, of blackness and queerness. If you don't mind, I would like to stay here for just a, a second more. I have uh, somewhat similar experiences. I lost a very near and dear friend to um, depression and addiction as well. Um, how did that manifest for you personally in terms of your own depression and then uh, substance abuse, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, I was uh, using substances in the hopes of finding some drug that could free me from my pain because my depression was crippling my ability to function. Like I could no longer think or move or exist as productively as I once could. Like I felt a heavy weight on my shoulders and uh, were not for the treatment that I was able to get. Um, who knows whether I would be alive today. You know, as a public official, I feel it's important for me to break the stigma and silence and shame that too often surrounds mental illness. You know, there's a sense in which acknowledging your struggles with mental illness is a form of coming out. And I think as a queer person, my identity has taught me the need to come out and to be your more your most authentic self. And 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 that has prepared me to come to grips with my struggles with depression. You know, I take an antidepressant every day, right? That little drug enables me to function at my best. And I feel no shame in admitting it because there are millions of Americans who struggle with depression like I do. And I want to give them hope that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Wonderful, thank you. That's, that's very powerful. In that same vein, how do we ensure that one, we break the stigma around mental health and mental illness in communities of color? And also how do we get access to treatment facilities to prescription drugs such as antidepressants, et cetera, et cetera, when wages are what they are, many people are uninsured, we don't have universal health care. What are you hoping to bring to the Hill in that regard? Look, there are some public goods that are so fundamental to our well-being that the government should guarantee it, right? We've determined as a society that education is one of those goods. Uh, the same should be true of healthcare, right? None of us can succeed in life without access to quality healthcare. And so we should establish a health healthcare as a human right 
through Medicare for all, which would take the profit motive out of healthcare. American healthcare has been corrupted by money. The organizing principle of American healthcare is neither health nor care, it's money. Right? We have a dysfunctional system where it is more profitable for a surgeon to amputate a diabetic than it is to treat the diabetes or prevent the diabetes from developing in the first place. Right? That is a morally corrupt system. And so we need Medicare for all, which would establish healthcare as a human right. Right? Everyone would have access to health care regardless of income and immigration status. That's not only good morals, but it's also good economics because the status quo is bankrupting our country. We have the highest health care cost, yet the worst health care outcomes. Thank you. So shifting gears ever so slightly, we've touched on affordable housing. We've touched on insurance, medical insurance for all. As it relates to all of those things coming together, right? The, the compounded interest, if you will, of education, of housing, of police reform, of real estate. How can someone like you, who's you know a, a queer person of color that has had these insurmountable odds to overcome, these structural inequities that exist, what advice would you give them for you know combating imposter syndrome, making the leap from a Lehman High to NYU to Congress? What words of encouragement would you give them or any tips? Believe in yourself. You know, I represent the hope that a poor kid, kid of color, an LGBTQ kid could overcome overwhelming odds and become a leader at the highest levels of American politics. So you have to believe in yourself and you have to find mentors who are willing to support you because we're only as strong as the support structure we have in our lives. And I've been fortunate to meet mentors who were there for me at the most challenging moments in my life. And just value your friends and family. Like your friends, your families, your mentor, that forms the bedrock of support on which you can achieve what Abraham Maslow calls self-actualization. But there's a limit to what we can do as individuals, right? Society has to do right by us. The government has to do right by us, right? If, if the government is tying your hands behind your back and cutting off your legs, there's gonna be a limit to how far you can run in the marathon of life. So we need to create a society that enables people to achieve the best version of themselves. Who are some of your mentors? Um, my, my, my first boss, uh, he was a former council member, uh, Jimmy Vaca, but he, he, he gave me my first uh, position in politics and took the time to invest in me and, and teach me the workings of city government. And, and, uh, and he did it, he had no obligation to do it, but he did it because he believed in me. And, and he thought that I should have an opportunity to be a leader in my community. Um, my teachers who taught me how to write, 
who gave me the opportunity to participate in the law team. I mean, just countless people. It, it's, it's, you know, there was no single person who made a difference, but it was the cumulative effect of all the, all the people who made generous contributions toward my life, who generously contributed their time, their energy, their wisdom toward me at various points in my life. It all adds up. And I'm grateful for it. Thank you. So we're accustomed to having LGBTQ representatives uh, across, you know, local and uh, federal government, uh, but they're typically white. Uh, and, you know, even if we're talking about, you know, a Larry Kramer or a Harvey Milk or a Cynthia Nixon uh, more recently, how does it feel to um, be on, on the brink of, you know, joining Congress as an out LGBTQ man of color alongside uh, Mondaire Jones? Look, it reminds me of the famous quote, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably going to be on the menu. And finally, LGBTQ people of color have a seat at the table at the highest levels of legislative power. Right? People like Mondia and myself are going to be in the room where it happens, where decisions are made. And we're going to have a Congress that is becoming every bit as diverse as the country itself that's going to reflect the identities and lived experiences of every American rather than those of a white male oligarch, which is what politics has been historically. You know, back in 2015, the Empire State Pride Agenda, which, is, which was once the statewide lobby for the LGBTQ community, after the decision on marriage equality, announced that it was closing shop that it had accomplished its mission. And I reacted in a state of shock because that's only something white males would say, right? If you're a trans person of color who continues to face police violence and who's murdered at disproportionately higher rates, the mission is not accomplished for you, right? If you're an LGBTQ young, young person who's been displaced from his own home by his own parents, the mission is far from accomplished for you. And so that's just something that elected officials like Mondaire and myself get instinctively, is we know there's more to legal equality than marriage, and there's more to social equality than legal equality. That legal equality is not, that equality is not only about the laws we pass, it's about the services we provide to those in greatest need in communities like mine. Um, Absolutely. You know, we're a product of our identity and lived experiences, and all of us bring those identities and lived experiences to bear on the policies that we enact in law. And so I hope that we're going to have laws that will speak specifically to the plight, to the lived experience of LGBTQ people of color. On that topic, we know the disparities uh, disproportionately affecting trans women of color, specifically black trans women, and also just black queer people across the board. What are your views on decriminalizing sex work? I'm, I'm in favor of decriminalizing sex work. Um, you know, if, if, if people have to survive and if people have concluded that 
you know, as long as those people are not subject to exploitation and those who do exploit should be held accountable. But, but I'm against any attempt to criminalize the sex workers themselves. You know, you know, attempting to survive should never be a crime. So thank you very much for, for that. I want to know what's on your culture slash media diet. What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you doing in your free time? What little of it you I, have? I have no free time. <laughs> when, when I'm not out in the fields, you know, meeting with civic leaders or touring key facilities in the district or conducting food distributions or PPE distributions, um, I'm often participating in 14 hours of Zooms and conference calls and meetings. And, you know, the demands of public life have a real crowding out effect on a personal life. And much of my reading is policy reports because I'm in the process of thinking through what my policy agenda should look like for the next two years. So tunnel vision at the moment. I am focused narrowly on Congress, uh, yes. But do you have and, any? And, and, and I have my, you know, my responsibilities as a, as a city councilman that I have to complete. Do you have any favorite pieces of culture that you, you know, return to? Favorite pieces? I'm, I'm not favorite pieces of culture. Like a, a favorite film, a favorite book from you know pre-campaign days. Um, I rarely watch television. Uh, I did love The Office. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's, but, but I rarely watch television. Um, you know, there, there, there are certainly great books out there. Like a favorite of mine is Yuval Harari's The History of Humankind, which is a fascinating history of humanity. Um, but, but I rarely get to indulge in personal pleasures. My, my life is almost all work. You know, for, for, for a while, I was relying on the gym as an outlet, but then when the campaign began in earnest, I had to abandon the gym, and now the gyms until recently were largely closed. So I lost the only outlet that I had. <laughs> well, did you do the Amazon order for you know resistance bands or anything like that? I find that name quite peculiar, by the way, and a bit on the nose for this moment. Uh, no, I would lift. I, I'm not, uh, but I, I would do. For me, there's no substitute for going to the gym directly, and and I have no gym in my apartment. I, mean, I can do a few push-ups and sit-ups, but but I actually want to do some lifting. So lifting, no no running, no jogging, anything like I'm that. I'm not a jogger, no. <laughs> I'm a walker. But I'm not a jogger. That seems safest, especially given that you've already recovered from COVID. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I have no fears of reinfection. I, I, I'm confident that I'm immune. But it was not until recently that the gyms have reopened. Got it. So just on one uh, final serious question, and then we'll wrap yeah. up. Um, we, we talk about, you know, the Black trans issues, right, with mortality, with police violence. Um, yeah misgendering, you know, even when it comes to applying for jobs and voting because, you know, IDs don't match uh, dead names and, you know, uh, current pronouns and things like that. 
I find that between the black trans issue and the marriage equality issue for many white, gay, and lesbian identified individuals, uh, black gay men, um, cisgender are typically left out of that conversation. We touched on the mental health component for everyone earlier in the conversation, but I wanna know your thoughts around, uh, you know, the Ed Buck case or, you know, Andrew Gillum and, and what he's been going through. You know, Kim Sex is this kind of dirty little open secret that everyone seems to want to sweep under the rug. And I think that's the extreme version of it, but it's like, what can we do to have one more open and honest dialogue around apps, around recreational drug use, uh, mental health, and you know, uh, housing insecurity, which often you know leads to these types of issues, and what we can do, and what people like you, you know, our elected representatives, can do to prevent situations like that from occurring. Well, the Andrew Gilling case is quite different from housing. Like my my impression is that he's not housing insecure. Um, so I feel like the what might be true of an elected official is different from what's true of everyone else. Look, when you're an elected official, you have to be careful, especially when you're like me, an LGBTQ Afro Latino person of color. Uh, the media is gunning for you. You know, you're one misstep away from losing your political career. So I have to be not perfect, but close to it. You know, if, 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 if I'm on an app, it could become cause for controversy. So I have far more restrictions on what I can do than most people. Um, but, I, you know, on, on the question of drug use, you know, we need, we need to view it as a, as a, as, as an issue that falls within the domain of public health, not the domain of criminal justice. You know, when, when the drug crisis was largely affecting people of color, it was seen as a problem best solved by the criminal justice system. And then the moment it began affecting white communities, the opioid epidemic, then it became conceptualized as a public health crisis by the same Republicans who were all too eager, and Democrats who were all too eager to over-criminalize communities of color. Uh, we ought to view substance abuse as a public health crisis for everyone, regardless of race. Absolutely. I mean, that hypocrisy, we see it with, yeah. you know, the woman's right to choose and Planned Parenthood. So should we be surprised? To the depth of systemic racism. Yes. Like, like the very manner in which we think about public policy problems, the very manner in which we speak about these problems is often reflective of systemic racism. Absolutely. So as we wrap up, I just want to ask, what's your intention going into 2021? To be the best congressman that I can be. You know, I represent the South Bronx, which is ground zero for racially concentrated poverty. So I want to do everything I can to break the cycle of systemic racism in places like the South Bronx. You know, I'm cautiously optimistic that the Democratic Party is going to win the presidency and the Senate 
And if we control all the levers of power in Washington, D.C., then we might have the makings of an FDR moment. We might have a once in a century opportunity to fundamentally reinvest in America on the scale of the New Deal. Well, we have the opportunity. It's a matter of whether or not we'll seize the opportunity. We, we, we don't have the opportunity yet because um, Republicans are in charge of the Senate and the presidency, and that's a real barrier. But, but if the Democrats are in control, that matters, and people forget that matters, but it does matter. Um, it would enable us to recover from COVID-19, fight catastrophic climate change, create the next generation of green jobs, create a genuinely comprehensive social safety net that guarantees a right to housing, a right to health care, and begin to address the root causes of systemic racism.